Hello, everybody, and welcome to episode three of I Wish You Were Dead, a podcast about things that used to be alive. My name is Mike. That is Gavin. Gavin, how's quarantine going? Uh, it's going. You know, I'm getting my COVID test uh, on Thursday for a little fourth wally stuff. We are recording this on uh, a Tuesday. So, yep, getting my test done on Thursday so I can escape quarantine. Not that there's really much to do. Uh, <laughs> but... Escape quarantine and into what? Exactly. Exactly, exactly. Um, but it'll at least be good to know, you know? Well, of course. And um, and how long do you have to be in quarantine for? You're coming from, was it South Dakota to New York? Yeah. Um, technically, either two weeks or until you get a negative test. So. Gotcha, gotcha. And how long has it been so far? Uh, I got here last Wednesday, so it'll be a little over a week. Gotcha, okay. All right, so that won't be too, too terrible. Is it going to be one of those rapid tests, or do you have to uh, to wait a couple of days? Yep, it's the rapid one. I could have gotten in on Monday for one of the uh, like more accurate tests, mm-hmm. but there's such a backlog of them, we didn't like kind of trust that that it would be back, because they say it's supposed to be in, in about uh, three to five days. However, one of my mom's coworkers got tested uh, that way, and it took them well over a week. Like the the coworker and his wife got tested together. She got her answer back within easily within that three to five days, but he got his back like a week later. Jeez. Oh, so, I mean, at the end of yeah. the day, it doesn't really matter because, like I said, there's nothing to do. Right. There's not but, too much to do. You'll be able to be with your family for Christmas, regardless. So. Um, and plus this way you'll get your results back, you know, and nothing will have happened in the meantime where you could have contracted it and got, you know, kind of the, uh, the false sense of security of a negative result. Yeah, absolutely. Although I did, you know, for reference for anyone who doesn't know me, all those multitude of people, uh, I am bald. <laughs> and so I, I forgot my razor to shave my head back in South Dakota. No, no, you didn't. I mean, okay. My, I had to have my dad pick me up one when he, uh came back from work today, but so oh, we're all okay. good. We're all good, but okay. I got worried there for a second. So you're still going to have that beautiful bald head that, uh, that I've come to know and love over this last, how long has, has he been bald now? Is it two years? Almost two. Okay. Wonderful. So, um, so I'm glad that I'm glad quarantine is going to be just about done for you guys. And I'm glad that we actually get to discuss, um, uh, a, uh, a fun kind of, I don't know if this is an addendum or a part two or a totally standalone, but a spiritual successor, at least to our episode from last week, we get to discuss Jurassic Park. I know I'm kind of excited about this because I had not seen the movie until I just rewatched it for this episode, which it, I could not. Well, believe- oh, yeah. okay. You, I, I cut you off for a second. I thought you were going to say you hadn't seen it and that, that was going to blow my mind. You know, for a second, I thought that I hadn't. Um, like, and I was going to just kind of keep that to myself, but I do remember specifically <laughs> my seventh grade, as I watched the movie, there were a couple of parts that it was like, oh yeah, my seventh grade science teacher, Mr. Mancabelli, uh, if you're out there listening to this, uh, there was a couple parts in there that I remember him talking to us about as he was showing the movie in class and he loved to show us movies. So, um, I had seen it before, but it, it had been so long that I really had kind of forgotten the basics other than. Um, I hope I'm not spoiling too much for anybody here, but like there's, you know, dinosaurs in a park and it doesn't go well and uh, well, it's terrifying. Okay. Number one, the movie is nearly 30 years old at this point. So I think it's well past the like spoiler date. So we're going to put like the general 
spoiler tag on uh do, do on we really need to do we need to I, so i've always i've always felt compelled whenever you're discussing anything even if it's super old like there have been people born in the interim who may not have had a chance to see it yet but who may have heard about it so i always feel it's important when you're discussing a piece of media even if it is old enough where reasonably you should be able to um you know you should be able to have seen it by now to always say okay we are putting the spoiler tag on this you have been fairly warned because it costs nothing to do that and i don't know it might help someone anyway if you haven't seen jurassic park <laughs> if you haven't seen jurassic park go watch it all of i, I believe at least the the original three so jurassic park uh jurassic park the lost world and jurassic park three are all on netflix I don't believe Jurassic World and Jurassic World Fallen Kingdom are. I don't I don't believe they are, but I'm not all that confident in saying that. And the the first three Jurassic Parks, like they were sort of the originals, correct? And then Jurassic World is the new one with Chris Pratt, right? Right. And we'll we'll get into some sort of the history a little bit of Jurassic Park as we go. The original book or pardon me, the original movie was not it was not an original, actually. If we're talking about this, it was actually a book before it was a movie, which I certainly didn't know. And I know we talked about in our first episode of this podcast, just how much that kind of affected you and your development as somebody as a scientist. So do you want to talk about kind of your discovery of Jurassic Park, whether that was the book or the movie first and, you know, kind of how that's um, how that led you here? Yeah, for sure. So I'll go through this and like a little bit of history of sort of the Jurassic franchise in general. Um, so I saw the movie first, like I said, in episode one, I don't believe, like, I believe I was around eight when I first saw it, but I don't quite remember. And then I learned that it was a book sometime around like late high school. So maybe 10th grade ish, 11th grade ish. Um, and then, you know, I quote unquote bought it from my library (laughs) which is a great phrase by the way you bought it from your library (laughs) i mean they replaced it (laughs) so yeah so i i watched the movie first you know nearly a decade before i really even discovered that there was a book let alone read it but the book itself came out in 1990 uh then the movie came out in 93 and so i actually looked more into because i mentioned that the the Like the movie was already basically in production before the book itself was published. And it's because the author, uh, Michael Crichton, who, as I mentioned in episode one, uh, somebody who I do not wish were dead. He unfortunately uh, passed away some number of years ago, but he was like friends with Steven Spielberg because they worked together on another project. So he was like, Hey, I'm writing this movie or writing this book. And Spielberg was like, I want it. I want some of that action. So I still find that amazing. That that mm-hmm. was that deal was in place before the book was even like yep. out. Yep. Uh, but yeah, so that was book in ninety, film in ninety three. Then sort of a, a little bit of a hiatus, uh, and there was the the sequel, Jurassic Park: The Lost World, in nineteen ninety seven. Now there is actually a second book as well, which I've not read all the way through. It is not, in my opinion, as good as the first one. Um, and the same, the same goes for the movie. I don't, none of them, none of the other movies are nearly as good as the first Jurassic Park. Is there and, a, um, like with the, with the, both the books and the movies, was it anticipated there was going to be sequels or was there sequels because of the success of the original book and the original movie? I feel like, and granted, I'm not an author. So I, I feel like most authors would like there to be enough, you know, interest 
in their book oh, of course. to write a sequel. So I, I don't know what was in Michael Crichton's mind, obviously, you know, when he wrote the first one. Um, I do know that in the first one, I spoilers here because, you know, the movie is one thing, the books, you know, if you want to read the book, I highly recommend it. It is basically the same plot, but very different. Um, like the, the, it, it ends up the same, but, uh, okay. how you get there is a little, is quite a bit different from the book. Uh, but yeah, in the book, Ian Malcolm dies. So Jeff Goldblum's okay. character dies. However, who is like one of my favorite parts of the actual movie. Oh, absolutely. He is by far the best Goldblum character in that is. movie. I love Goldblum. At least that's how I, I didn't interpret it when reading, when reading the book as open-ended that he died. But he is the main character, if you know anything about the rest of the franchise. He's the main character of Jurassic Park The Lost World, the second one. Mm -hmm. Even the second book. I don't remember exactly how he sort of retcons that, but he does in in the book. And they sort of write that off as just him not dying in the movie. So that that, that all works out relatively fine. Uh, And then Jurassic Park 3 was put out in 2001. So they had a nice, you know, four year spacing between them. So 93 to 97 and then 97 to 01. There is not a third Jurassic Park book. So what they did for Jurassic Park three was basically take some pieces that were cut out from the first book and the second book that didn't make it into the movie and sort of weirdly spliced them together into Jurassic Park three. And you can tell uh, Jurassic Park three is, in my opinion, the worst of all five currently released Jurassic Park movies. I was going to say, that sounds like it's more of a, uh, not to accuse anyone of anything, a little bit more of maybe a money grab than um, like a real strong cinema. Yeah, absolutely. And a big theme that I'm going to want to talk about later is how in the first one, you know, they make it very clear. There's a little bit of an exception, but they make it clear that these are just animals doing what animals do. You know, it's a giant carnivorous animal. It's going to eat things. Or with the Velociraptors. These are roughly person-sized carnivorous animals. They're going to eat things roughly human-sized. However, even in the second movie, and sort of as they get away from the first one, that goes away. In that they stop being animals, just doing animal things. And they start becoming movie monsters. Which is a real shame, because that's one of the biggest things that I loved about the first one. So that kind of, we can take that in a couple different directions. Do we want to talk a little bit about how Jurassic Park kind of changed the way uh, maybe movies got made and how we saw, you know, dinosaurs in movies and in media? Or do we want to talk about how Jurassic Park and the Jurassic Park franchise end up changing the public's view of dinosaurs at large we can kind of take that in a couple different directions so i, I want to finish going through a little bit more of the history a little bit because okay. we're not quite done so dress work three comes out in 2001 then there's a long time period like i said there was the four years between each one and two and two and three and then they go 14 years between jurassic park three and jurassic world which is the first one with chris pratt now i don't dislike I don't dislike any of these movies but they make it very clear that any pretense of these just sort of being animals is gone in 
Jurassic World. So these are more villains than they are animals at this point. Right. And like through the story, it makes sense. You know, you, you said you've seen Jurassic World, right? Um, I saw, again, like, I think I was one of those things where I saw it when it had already been on for like the first 15 minutes had gone okay. by. Uh, but I, I remember seeing the vast majority of like Chris Pratt kind of just being Chris Pratt, which I right. enjoyed thoroughly. So the the main villain of, of both Jurassic World and Jurassic World Fallen Kingdom, the most recent one that came out in 2018. So there were three years between those two. Uh, they're both di- different quote unquote dinosaurs. I would not call them dinosaurs because they're not, they're completely man-made, but they're genetic hybrids. If you can even call them that, because that's not, not hybrid in like the biological sense in that sort of like uh, a mule is a hybrid between a horse and a donkey. They didn't take just two closely related animals and breed them. They did it purely through genetic engineering. And any pretense of that just being a normal animal doing animal things is not even attempted to be established, which I am fine with. But it's when they've already established in the first Jurassic Park movie that these are, you know, there is even a line in the first one where uh, Lex, the the young uh, girl character, is afraid of a Brachiosaurus, you know, a sauropod dinosaur, big, long neck, completely harmless unless it, you know, steps on you. One, a dinosaur that I might call a brontosaurus until our last episode, possibly. Yes. Um, but no, it's, it is a brachiosaurus and, uh, Alan Grant, the, the paleontologist in the movie straight up says it's not a monster Lex. They're just animals. And so they, they establish that these are just animals reacting to their environment. And the fact that they just repeatedly break that in Jurassic Park, uh, Lost World and Jurassic Park 3, is what really bothers me the most about those two movies. But anyway, we're, we're getting more off track. But I just, I just want to make sure that like we are, we are having a focused critique here, because I don't think you or I have any problem with, you know, movies taking uh, artistic license or really have any problems with the movies sort of on their own terms. Uh, but you're more the, the critique that you're kind of making more than anything else is just sort of the bait and switch that gets pulled between that first movie of there being, obviously it's, you know, science fiction, but there being sort of this veneer of authenticity to it with the dinosaurs versus what comes next with the subsequent movies, which is they have gone from being dinosaurs as, you know, as best understood to being more convenient villains. Is that, do I have a kind of summarized, you know, kind of that position correctly? Absolutely. So one of the clips that I sent you that I don't think you got around to, that was from uh, Jurassic Park, The Lost World. Correct. I have not seen that one yet. There's, there's a scene sort of toward the end and sort of the velociraptors are one of the main villains of the first movie, right? Obviously mm-hmm. like the, the main, main villain is the, the T-Rex. Of course. Uh, but but the, there's a, they're, they're supporting character at that point. Yes. So they're not much in the velociraptors, are not much in Jurassic Park, the lost world until uh, about a 10 to 15 minute clip sort of at toward the end of the movie. And they are literal just movie monsters. Like they are jumping through glass windows when they, and it's not just like jumping through it to get to something. It's like they're jumping through it to be dramatic. Or uh, at one point, uh, Ian Malcolm is in a car and it is driving its face through the glass 
of like the opposite. Like if he's in the driver's seat, he's dri- like shoving its face through the broken glass of the passenger side window. And I'm like, no animal, no matter how, you know, unless it is literally starving is going to do that. Like it could be, you know, a lion, you know, trying to hunt something, but it's not going to shove its face through broken glass. And it's not just like shoving it through the glass. It is breaking the window more with its face to get to him. And that's something that wouldn't have happened in the first movie, given the way that the dinosaurs were portrayed in that first movie. Exactly. Because I wanted to kind of get that out of the way first was sort of the that history of Jurassic Park and then sort of what... Um, you kind of, as a paleontologist, what might ir- what might irk you about that? And I'm definitely glad that it's not just that it's science fiction, and a science fiction movie wasn't uh, wasn't totally scientifically accurate. It's kind of a more nuanced thing where it's like, hey, look, if we're going to do Jurassic Park and we're going to be as faithful as we can to you know dinosaurs and science, uh, and then abandoning that for the previous episodes, it's a little bit of a bait and switch that can, I assume is quite annoying for people that actually know what's going on. Yeah. But that does kind of lead us into kind of really well, that kind of leads us into people's view of dinosaurs, which are, you know, they're shaped by lots of different things. The books that you're reading as a kid um, or what you are taught, probably mostly in elementary school is where you're probably going to be taught about dinosaurs and things of that. But also as with kind of everything, the media and movies and the things that we consume for fun are going to shape the way that we see dinosaurs and well, pretty much anything else. And so Jurassic Park, I would have to assume, and I could be wrong about this, but Jurassic Park has to be the single biggest uh, way that people get their view of dinosaurs. When you think of a dinosaur in your head, you are probably thinking consciously or not of what you saw in Jurassic Park. So what was it that Jurassic Park did that changed the way people saw dinosaurs? What was it in the Jurassic Park franchise? We can um, even broaden it from the books to the subsequent movies and everything else. What was it in that franchise that has shaped the way people think about dinosaurs? What comes into people's head when we are talking about those giant birds that went extinct 60, we talked last week, 66 million weeks ago and not 65? 66 million weeks ago did i say 66 million weeks you did i mean that's still a very long time uh not quite the 66 not million quite. years <laughs> that's only that's that's only roughly a million years um you know gavin if you if you said something like that i would edit it out to make you smart but we are keeping <laughs> that in because mike tripping over his own words is going to be one of the recurring themes of this podcast so somewhere between 66 million weeks and 66 million years ago the dinosaurs go extinct uh, and how does Jurassic Park shape the way that we see what dinosaurs are? So as with kind of everything, and this is going to be a recurring theme for things that I say, is that you need to figure out and, and talk about how things were beforehand in order to talk about how whatever your whatever topic you're discussing changed it. So before Jurassic Park, there had been a really long hiatus in like really popular pieces of media with dinosaurs in them. The last like really, really popular thing was were some of the King Kong movies of like the 30s and 40s, the like black and white films and where you it's literally just a person in a dinosaur suit. The kind of thing where I would watch it today and think, oh, that's a bad movie. Yeah, exactly. 
Uh, I, to be fair, I, I've never actually seen like King Kong or anything, but I've seen like 30s and 40s movies, and I've every time I've watched them, I've been like, eh, this sucks. So back then, they sort of just be, just because they didn't have another way to do it, they portrayed, they portrayed dinosaurs as almost looking like Godzilla, with an upright spine, just like a human, with a tail dragging on the ground, and this was also partially how scientists had perceived dinosaurs as well, just because. Well, the only other bipedal things really that we are aware of are humans. I mean, they didn't really consider birds because at the time they hadn't really established that birds are dinosaurs and that connection yet. Were they still on the whole lizard thing? Yes. So they sort of just imagined them as lumbering, just giant lizards with their tails dragging on the ground. Um, There's actually a really good... So uh, at the school that I go to, we have a really cool museum on campus and we have an Edmontosaurus, which is a duck-billed dinosaur. And because it was mounted in the museum, the bones of it were, you know, put together for display. Back in the 40s, it is standing with its back almost upright like a human with its tail dragging on the ground, which is not at all how they are seen today. Uh, we, we know for a fact that that is not how they walked. But because it was mounted back then and they did really bad had really bad mounting practices back then. We can't remount it or everything would break. That was going to be my next question. Like, is that like, is that permanent damage that was done? Oh, absolutely. They like drilled straight through the bones to put like metal rods through them. Yeah. They did a lot of really bad things back in the forties. Uh, when it, when it comes to, well, a lot of things, but paleontology too. Yeah. The forties weren't a great time for, you know, all of humanity. Yeah, pretty much. But moving on, uh, <laughs> they, um, so dinosaurs today, are seen mostly because of Jurassic Park as if they are bipedal, it is essentially like they were bipedal and then just lifted up their front legs. Their spines are still more or less horizontal. Humans really did bipedalism wrong. You know, humans are, humans are actually very bad at being bipedal. Honestly, like we had a whole lecture about this in one of my classes this semester, just how bad humans are morphologically, which again, whole nother topic that I could talk about for literally probably an hour, but I've actually got some stuff I want to say on that, but yeah, let's hold <laughs> off on that. We can, we can add it to the list, but yeah, so Jurassic park, you know, even though scientists had figured out probably back in like the early eighties, roughly is when people started to sort of figure out, okay, dinosaurs weren't these tail dragging, dumb lizard things. And that they were some sort of these more active predators more potentially not necessarily smart you know but smarter definitely than was thought and much more active than was thought but as is really common just because science changes their perception and and interpretation of something that takes quite a while there's a bit of a lag time between when science collectively sort of changes its mind and when the public changes its mind just a quick question about dinosaurs in general. We're talking about, you know, in Jurassic Park itself, there's all these different dinosaurs. And you said kind of the view had changed from, you know, dumb lizard dragging its tail to kind of that more active view. Is that the case with all dinosaurs? Do we think that's the case you know, sort of across the species? Or is that is that specific to only certain dinosaurs? Or how much variation, I guess, is there in the behavior of dinosaurs that, that we can tell as best we can today? So... Most of it is coming from histology, which is like studying tissues, which, you know, for dinosaurs, we pretty much only have their bones with a few notable exceptions. 
Uh, but we can tell a lot about sort of like the metabolism of an animal by looking at the, you know, like making a cross section of its bones and looking at them under a microscope. So we can tell that most dinosaurs, and granted, I have not, you know, looked at microscope slides for every single group of dinosaur, but collectively they were pretty active. You know, there are some that we still think were pretty dumb, you know, things like, like, like Stegosaurus where its head is just so incredibly small relative to the rest of its body, which obviously means that it's got a relatively small brain and just like sort of like the problem problem solving sections of its brain are not especially large. It just sort of was like, Hey, I'm bigger than you. And I have these really dangerous spikes in my tail. Don't come near me. They're essentially rhinos. Uh, <laughs> I was going to compare them to like the high school bully, not the smartest person in the world, but you're still kind of afraid of them because of what could happen. <laughs> Yeah, I guess that's a pretty good comparison. I, I try to compare dinosaurs, as we talked about last time, you can't really compare dinosaurs to anything we have today. You know, there's no like good comparison, but like a solid comparison to things like stegosaurs would be things like rhinos. Uh, or I guess those would probably be more analogous to like ceratopsian dinosaurs, like triceratops actually had horns on the front. We don't really have a big herbivorous animal that uses its tail for defense. Whereas there were several different kinds of them running around with the dinosaurs. But in general, Jurassic park by itself and, you know, Jurassic park influenced a whole like sort of sub genre of movies about dinosaurs. You know, if you look at movies that came out in 94, 95, you will see a, a very sharp uptick in movies about dinosaurs just because of Jurassic Park. And so one of, the, and also one of the biggest things is that, so the, the main sort of dinosaur advisor for the Jurassic Park franchise uh, is a guy named Jack Horner. He's kind of a very controversial person in paleontology. Correct me if I'm wrong. I believe I sent you, uh, there was one time I was like watching yes, Ted talk yep. for fun and I was like, Hey, look at this guy. This guy's awesome. And uh, you kind of very politely corrected me and said, we need to be careful with Jack Horner. Yes. So I, I, I'm not going to undersell his contributions to paleontology at all. He has done a lot of really good work for paleontology. However, when he was in his 60s, he married a 19-year-old, uh, one of his students, which is obviously not cool. Yeah, I mean, like there's, you know, I suppose there's lines to be drawn around like, you know, the age of majority and adulthood, but there's also lines to be drawn around just like what's creepy. And there's also lines to be drawn around a professor undergrad student relationship. And I think exactly. that last one is probably by far the most concerning about kind of the power dynamic that was at play there. You or I have never met either one of them, I'm going to assume. No, nope, I've, I've never met Jack. But we can kind of infer from that 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 is, you know, that kind of a power dynamic is not appropriate, especially with that kind of an age difference. Yeah. So Jack Horner, controversial figure, but what were you going to kind of say about him? So he has some, especially back then had some controversial ideas about paleontology or was, which, which a lot of which did turn out to be correct, or at least have more evidence to support them now than they did then. Such so as, not a crank. No, not, not a total cuckoo. You know, he is, you know, he is a serious paleontologist, you know, speaking of him professionally. Yes, absolutely. Uh, so he was a big proponent very early on of dinosaurs being what most people would call warm blooded, uh, which isn't quite the case. There were sort of, 
sort of in between from what we can tell, uh, which, which isn't a lot because that's, you know, you need a lot more than bones to tell that for certain. But from what we can tell, they were much more warm blooded than people think of than like, than like lizards, you know? And so something that's really cool that he insisted was put in, uh, and I, I want to say he sort of advised the book as well, but I don't know that for sure. But one of the things that he insisted was put in was the scene where the velociraptors are coming into the kitchen to come after the kids. And it's looking through sort of the, the glass window and right. it breathes out and fogs up the thing with steam, which is a really small detail, but something that's just sort of really important. And that just sort of people just sort of bought that immediately. And tell me why that's important. So why exactly is the steam coming onto the window from the dinosaur breathing out? Why is that important? Why is that a, um, a crucial detail, a small one, albeit? Well, I mean, it's not like, you know, the, it, it implies that their breath is warm, which means that their body is warm. And how, so we have this idea that dinosaurs are, you know, warm blooded, I suppose, in part because of, you know, that one scene. How accurate is that? What is the, the state of science right now acknowledging all the uncertainty that goes into it? Pretty, pretty confident just because generally, so whether they created their own heat per se, such as mammals and birds do, they probably did some, uh, but just bigger, larger animals in general need to create less of their own heat, which is why things like elephants have really big ears because they actually need to get rid of heat and why they, why they don't have fur anymore because they're so big that just being that large, you retain a lot of heat. So they need to get rid of some excess heat. So just being as large as dinosaurs were probably made them run a little warm. But even the smaller ones, it's also sort of assumed that, you know, if, if most dinosaurs had feathers, at least the theropods, and there's even some evidence of some of the early members of other groups. So the theropods being the ones that walk on two legs, the ones that uh, eat meat, you know, such as Velociraptor T-Rex. We're pretty confident in saying that almost all of them had some form of feather at some point in their life. So such as like a baby T-Rex. We, we don't think adult T-Rexes did, but babies we're pretty confident did. And, you know, feathers are there to keep heat in, which wouldn't really make sense if you needed to get heat from like the sun or just a warm area like lizards do. So the science right now is pretty suggestive of the fact that dinosaurs were warm-blooded, which is something that may have been controversial in 1993, but is sort of proven to be uh, more in the direction the scientific community is going. Is that about correct? Yeah, for sure. Wonderful. So is there anything else, any other ways um, specifically that the Jurassic Park series has influenced the way people view dinosaurs, again, either correctly, as it seems to be the case with that you know, kind of famous scene of the window fogging up, or incorrectly, as maybe kind of those later movies have uh, have done? So... One thing that I can't avoid mentioning is, so, so I think that by far, the dinosaur that they got the most right was the T-Rex, but by a long shot, because the Velociraptors, A, they're not feathered, which uh, they sort of throw a little bit of a nod to in Jurassic Park 3, in that uh, the male Velociraptors are slightly different colored and have, they look like some some sort of quills on, on their head, but 
we now know that Velociraptor, well, Dromaeosaurs in general, which is the group of uh, dinosaurs that Velociraptors and quote-unquote raptors are in. And uh, we're pretty sure that all of them had feathers for pretty much all of their life. Uh, however, Velociraptor itself is, and most people may, may know this, you know, just because it's talked about a lot. Velociraptor itself was only about three feet tall. I did not know that. Wow. Yep. So the actual genus, which is what Velociraptor is, was about three feet tall, probably about six feet long, uh, and is found in only Mongolia and China. In fact, I believe the only species of Velociraptor is Velociraptor mongoliensis. So it's only found in that part of the world. Uh, however, the name Velociraptor sounds much cooler and is much, <laughs> much more easily pronounceable than what those dinosaurs in the book and movie, because the book gets this wrong too. What they're based off of is a dinosaur called uh, Deinonychus or Deinonychus, depending on uh, who you talk to, but which is almost exactly the same size as the Velociraptors in the movie, about six feet tall, about uh, nine feet or so long, uh, about human sized. So that's one that they get most things right, except for the name. If they just called it Deinonychus, or it could, I guess, be Utah Raptor, uh, which is also about the same size. Utah Raptor sounds vaguely non-threatening. Like, it's this is weird. It's a raptor, but it's from Utah. So I, I don't know how to feel about that. <laughs> yeah, so there, there's a number that they could have, but nothing sort of had the same ring as Velociraptor, you know? So that's why they went with that. Uh, the biggest one by far that they get wrong, though, is the Dilophosaurus, the little one that spits venom and has the frill. And do they get that one wrong because it doesn't exist? It does exist, but the only thing that they got right about it is that it has two crests on its skull. That's what Dilophosaurus means. It means like two-crested lizard. And even though they're not lizards, that's just the, the suffix that people use for any sort of reptiles, pretty much, uh, when they when they give them names. So that's the, pretty much the only thing they got right. So number one, Dilophosaurus was roughly nine or so feet tall. It was, this was a big animal. Number two, there's literally no evidence whatsoever that it spat venom. Literally none. Is this is this something where, like, there's no evidence, but, like, you know, it could, we just have no idea? Or, like, is there no evidence and, like, we would know or we would at least have an idea if they did spit venom? We would have an idea. So the, the, okay. closest, the closest thing... So in order for something to spit venom, it would need, you know, a venomous bite to begin with, right? So the only animals really, I mean, there are a couple mammals, but those aren't, they're weird. So I don't, I'm not going to bring those up, but the closest ones that you would want to sort of consider when talking about that kind of thing would be a number of venomous snakes. And then also the lizard genus Heloderma, which contains uh, the uh, Gila monster. And the beaded lizard, the only two notable venomous species of lizard. And when you look at the skull of those animals, you can see visibly where their venom gland is. Like, it leaves an, a notable impression on the skull. So this is different than last week when we were talking about something different. At this point, it's not just, you know, absence of evidence. There is evidence of absence of, yes. uh, of these dinosaurs' ability to be venomous. Yes. And, you know, the only sort of spitting venom animal that we have, to my knowledge today, is uh, the spitting cobra, which, you know, venom is a really unique compound, 
in that you want it to be really non-viscous. You want it to be very watery so that when you inject it into something, it spreads throughout that animal's body very quickly. And so if you were spitting something that looks essentially like tar in the movie, that would be very not effective at doing its job. Because, because it couldn't so, get throughout the body quickly, right? Yes. So it would be pretty effective at what it does in the movie. In that, like, you know, if you spit it into something's eyes to, to blind them, you know, you don't really need it to get through the rest of the body if you're just trying to go for their eyes. But it's like, what? it doesn't make sense. Evolution doesn't do a lot of things without, like, a quote-unquote reason. And I don't like talking about evolution doing things because evolution is just a process. It doesn't, like, have a, an end goal in mind. But to develop a spittable poison like that or, or venom, you would need an injectable venom first. And to have that thick of an injectable venom just doesn't make sense. So they really screwed this one up. And which dinosaur was this? Dilophosaurus. It's the one that kills the guy that screws up everything. Right, right, right. Okay. Dilophosaurus. The one that kills the guy that screws up everything. Yep. So I guess so it's okay they, in the end. Well, and not only do they not have venom, they also don't have the frill. That is something that's harder to disprove but again it's like there's literally zero evidence for it at all uh they just thought it would look cool so there's even less of a reason for for something like that because you know, at least with the venom part like it serves a purpose for the movie even if it's not scientifically accurate just because right. you know the frill itself it looked a touch scarier with that instead of you know having it look more the way that we think that it looked right and so the whole reason of having a frill like that is to scare off big scary predators you know animals that do that kind of thing are the frilled lizard from australia which is roughly a little bit larger than like bearded dragon size they maybe get to about three or so feet long maybe uh not a big lizard at all and so they do that to make themselves look big and scary other animals that do something similar such as are like cobras when they stand up tall and stretch out their hood uh, there's also a number of snakes that aren't cobras that do a similar thing. Like there's a snake called the false water cobra and it's called false because it is not a, not an actual cobra, but enough animals know, okay, if it does this and stretches out its hood, that's something that's big and scary that I should stay away from. So uh, some other snakes sort of were like, Hey, it works for them <laughs> more <laughs> or less. Obviously, like I said, evolution doesn't work that way with like an end goal, but a little bit of convergence there a little bit of like mimicry is what that's called so if dilophosaurus so dilophosaurus the the real animal was around toward the beginning of when dinosaurs period were around you know in the mid to late triassic and so a 10 foot tall dinosaur especially a predatory one would be the largest predatory dinosaur on the planet probably one of the largest predators on the planet period so why would it need a big frill to scare off things when it, it was is already the, there? It is it is the big scary thing. There, there would be there's no need for it to be any bigger and scarier. Exactly understood. So we've got you know we've kind of got our basis of what the movie has kind of done to the perceptions of dinosaurs. Was there anything else you wanted to add? Kind of onto that, just what the movie itself has done to the public, you know, at large and the public's view of dinosaurs? Not really, other than just making dinosaurs more popular again. Um, and I'll, I'll circle back to this a little bit when we talk about, after we talk about the, the next point, which is sort of how it sort of changed movies in general. 
So let's, I mean, let's get right into that then. Let's, you know, I, I am, I am not familiar with dinosaurs, but I'm even less familiar with sort of the cinematic history of dinosaurs. So what exactly did Jurassic Park do to change the way movies are made? And that, which is kind of the way you put it in our notes here. So I'll, I will kind of let you take this because I'm really interested to find out exactly how this ends up working out that the um uh that jurassic park changes you know you know cinema in one way or another permanently yeah so jurassic park changed things in a lot of ways so the biggest three i would say would be cg which you know we think today with you know recent movies such as like avengers endgame incredible cg in those movies right you know most of the movie at this point is cg realistically however in the early 90s CG technology was not great. So Jurassic Park really, you know, you, you just watched it, what, today or yesterday, right? Correct. How good do you think that CG is relative to what we have today? You know, I was kind of thinking about that at the time. You know, I kind of hit in my head, you know, movie came out in the early-ish 90s. Um, and this is like, you know, you know, I'm pretty good at suspending disbelief as is. But even if I wasn't, I mean, they did a damn good job with dinosaurs interacting with the real world, interacting with human beings. Like, you know, you, I could quibble with a couple of different parts if I really wanted to. But A, I don't really want to. And B, I thought that they did a damn good job portraying um, or trying to put these, you know, you know, if you want to call them monsters, if you want to portraying these animals on screen in a way that just probably wasn't realistic for all of cinema history up until that point. Exactly. And so a lot of people at the time, like I, I and the reason why I like I had heard how revolutionary this movie was, but I when I was sort of writing the notes for this episode, uh, I, I looked more into it. And a lot of people at the time, like in the movie industry, were like, you can't do this. Like what you were trying to do, we just don't have the ability to do it yet. And they did it anyway. And so they blew a lot of people's minds. And so like, even just comparing it to something from like, I don't know, mid 2000s, you know, getting toward like 2010, this probably beats most of those. I would think like, in my opinion, and maybe there's a little bias here just because I love this movie so much, but, but there's the time, it doesn't give anything up at that point. It's no, a, not at, at all. At the very least, if it's not, if it's not, you know, if it's not better than, you know, the movies that came after it for the next decade and a half or so, at the very least doesn't give anything up for that period of time. Absolutely. So this just really changed what people thought was possible for movies at the time. And at least for, you know, if you want to do like a completely animated movie, that's one thing, you know, Toy Story came out not that long after this and Toy Story obviously looks beautiful, but they don't look realistic making realistic animals on the screen was just to this level of detail was something that people just did not think was possible. And Jurassic Park just said, huh, LOL, watch me. The, the next sort of thing that was also incredible for the time were the animatronics, which makes a lot of sense given that it was like Steven Spielberg working on it, who was really good friends with George Lucas and you know, the, you know, all, all of the animatronic stuff in the early Star Wars films was also incredible for the time. And I believe it was the same studio. I don't know that for sure, but I believe it was the same, like, stu like visual effects, special effects studio that was working on a lot of the st early Star Wars stuff. But the animatronics for the time were just 
out of this world, especially the T-Rex, which there's a lot of fun stories about. So obviously in the main T-Rex attack scene, it's raining, right? Yes. So they had to stop filming every 15 minutes or so in order to pat dry the T-Rex because its flesh was made out of this like absorbent <laughs> rubbery material and it and it would get too heavy for the the crane and stuff to move around my favorite part about this is that it's pat drying so you've got i assume just like a couple of interns or whatever whatever their job title maybe I don't like want a small them, army of people yeah right going out there with towels and just drying it out there's something about that that's kind of charming well and it's also really funny so the the water i guess they didn't waterproof the like electrical stuff as well as oh, they no. wanted to. Oh, Nothing no. like shorted or anything. Nothing. Nobody got hurt or anything. But. Sometimes it would just start moving by itself. Or it would just start <laughs> making noises by itself. This sounds like one of those things that would happen and then it would get into the movie in one way or another. Oh, absolutely. So And and so something that did happen like that is when it's coming down through the, the roof of the Jeep, through the glass, uh, on, on the kids, the glass breaks. That's not supposed to happen. That glass was not supposed to break. Oh, jeez. So, like, the screams of terror from those children are 100% genuine, and they just kept them in. <laughs> like any good movie, you should be terrorizing children. <laughs> um, and another, another, you know, the, the Velociraptors were also really good. They weren't as good, because for some of, like, the movement scenes, it's kind of tough to have one that small while being that close to it without obviously being able to tell that it is a machine. So for some of it, they did have to have like a person, like for any of like the, you know, close-ups of like the feet when it's running, that was, that was literally just a person with Velociraptor boots on. Okay. But something I think is sort of on par with how good the T-Rex was, was the Triceratops that they go visit, like when it's sick and like passed out. Yeah, that was towards the beginning of the movie. Yes, that was uh, at the sort of beginning-ish of the uh, tour that they take. Right. People, for for some reason, I don't know who actually would be like, oh, that's a real animal because, you know, it's a triceratops. But people were like, oh, my God, is there a real animal there? Like, was that a real sick animal? Like, you can look up stuff <laughs> from the time, uh, like people being on, you know, the early form of the Internet being like, did they hurt an animal for this? <laughs> because because people thought that that was a real animal. That's how good that Triceratops looked and still looks. You know, I'm laughing, you know, me here in 2020, ha ha, people are dumb. But like, if you've never seen something like that before, if this is, you know, a first of its kind, you know, I suppose that's not completely unreasonable to wonder if, you know, if there's just no other analog to this, which, you know, kind of goes with the whole, this movie really does change, change cinema and changes, you know, what people think of are possible in movies. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, and then so so the last one of the, the three things that Joe Spark really changed was sound. So granted, you know, we listen to everything in like Dolby, HD, whatever, audio today. That's pretty regular for us when we're watching movies. That's sort of built into every movie nowadays or, or something better. I'm not at all a sound person, but this was like the first movie to like really use like surround sound and use like really, really sophisticated, essentially modern. This was like the first movie to use modern sound recording uh, sort of equipment, sound recording styles. 
So it's it was just really, really impressive and set a precedent for years. Like people in film school teach classes on Jurassic Park. That That is how revolutionary this movie was for so many different aspects of uh, fil- like film creation. And so with that, I think we can kind of take just how revolutionary Jurassic Park was with its visuals, with the way those visuals interacted with human beings and with the with the sound and putting all that together and you've got a you know a cultural phenomenon that is distinct from anything else. I don't want to necessarily say bigger than anything else. You know, with you, know, you had different movies like The Wizard of Oz or Gone with the Wind or Star Wars, but you've got kind of a distinct phenomenon, you'd have to say, with Jurassic Park, which is going to leave an influence on the society at large when it comes to the way they think about dinosaurs. But it's also going to affect people that want to go into that field. And I think that's a great, this is kind of a great way for us to start thinking about, okay, we made a movie. It was a fun movie, but this movie had some real world consequences on in the field of science. And so I see you've written down here in the notes, this is both good and bad for the science. What do we, you know, what do we have to say? Or I should say, what do you have to say? Where does this movie kind of leave? science how does it affect the field itself so immediately following jurassic park and you know in immediately in terms of science so within five to ten years after the movie came out right you take kids that are in high school or so and they've got to go through college and get their degrees so exactly that you know kind of that kind of lag time this introduced a flood of new paleontologists but specifically ones that only cared about dinosaurs. Which really bothers me because I don't study dinosaurs, but when I tell people I'm a paleontologist, what's the first thing they ask me? Or ask me? They ask me about dinosaurs. And I'm like, yeah, I know more about dinosaurs than the average person, but probably, you know, not any more than a good biologist who just knows things about different you know, groups of animals, you know, I don't study dinosaurs. I study an ecosystem that didn't even exist when dinosaurs were around. I think I mentioned, I don't remember, I think it was last episode, but it could have been the first episode too, um, that grass didn't even exist when the dinosaurs were around. I study, I compare grassland, like the fossils that are found at different grassland ecosystems about 10 or so million years ago. Those ecosystems didn't even exist and wouldn't even exist for another, I don't know, 15 to 20 million years after dinosaurs were gone. So like, I don't really comparatively compared to a lot of other people know that much about dinosaurs, but it's the person that people ask me when I tell them I'm a paleontologist. And that's just one of the minor inconveniences to me, let alone the massive impact that this had on science, because those people who only wanted to study dinosaurs because they thought dinosaurs were cool were really not all that interested in the rigors that being a good, thorough, professional scientist takes. And so before we end up getting there, because I do want to get to the harm that was caused to the field, you do have here some good that was in the field. So let's kind of front load this, front load this. Let's sure. kind of steel man this side of Jurassic Park being good for the field itself. What was, you know, I assume number one, you have just this influx of people going into the field. And I assume some of those people, you know, would, and at this point are good at their job and still doing 
good science. And so Absolutely. I'm assuming that I'm assuming that this movie kind of brought in some people that were good to the field. But what other kind of positive aspects does Jurassic Park have on the field of paleontology and dinosaur paleontology specifically? So one of the biggest things in any field of science, whether it's paleontology, paleontology especially, but whether it's you know different forms of biology, physics, chemistry, whatever, funding is massive. And like I talked about, I believe in episode one, uh, you know, if you get accepted or if, if 25% of your grant proposals get accepted and funded, you are a rock star, but people don't, don't donate to things that they don't know about. So with dinosaurs becoming so huge, that just turned a lot of heads toward paleontology. And the more people are paying attention, the more people give their money to, you know, paleontology related uh, organizations such as the Society of Vertebrate Paleontology or even just like the National Science Foundation. Like, I'm pretty sure the National Science Foundation gave, you know, its percentage of money toward paleontology was at its highest, probably in the late 90s to early 2000s, probably just because of Jurassic Park. So that is the single biggest thing. And like paleontology is a pretty underfunded science in general, just because you know, compared to something like medicine, it's really not that practical. Paleontology doesn't really help that many people with a couple of ex exceptions of some small fields or like subfields of paleontology, but paleontology is pretty underfunded and Jurassic Park drastically changed that. And then a lot, you know, you said that the, the, you know, paleontology itself isn't all that practical. And you know, I imagine that makes it rather difficult to get funding, but that doesn't mean that it's not important. And so sort of any opportunity, you can get a bite at the apple, whether it's, you know, because a movie has created interest in it or whatever. I'm assuming that you guys would take that because I assume some of that money was also going to study horses and, you know, everything else under the sun in paleontology, including dinosaurs. Yeah, absolutely. And so a lot of it was stuff like, like institutions would just, you know, apply for grants to, to fund a grad student or something. And just because paleontology was sort of the headline, a lot of, you know, organization would be like, yeah, sure. You got it. Regardless of what that particular grad student was going to be working on. So in that sense, really, really cool, really good. Um, but that's other than those at the time, few and far between a lot of those, bad people have since sort of been weeded out, or at least we now know who the bad scientists are. So we just sort of disregard most things that they say. But other than introducing those new good people and all of that flood of money, there really wasn't all that much good that came out of Jurassic Park from a scientific standpoint, because it also spread a lot of misinformation because then people started you know, looking more into projects about bringing back dinosaurs like they do in the movie, which is not a thing. When you go, go deeper into that when you say that it's not because I sort of have a, um, a note here that I wrote yeah. down, but I want you to kind of explain what you mean when you say it's not a thing. And then we can kind of um, talk about my question and is it, you know, is it even relevant? So it spread a lot of misinformation in the sense that like, granted, this is a really small thing, but it's like, if you buy a toy of Dilophosaurus, it's going to have a frill, which is dumb. Like even stuff that's not even affiliated with Jurassic Park, the franchise 
You could just buy one, a generic one off of Amazon. It'll have a frill. Most people think that Dilophosaurus has a frill just from Jurassic Park, which again, Dilophosaurus in and of itself is a very, very cool dinosaur. And that is the first, like the, the first like big carnivorous dinosaur, which is super cool, but that gets overshadowed by the movie. Another one is just the stuff that I talked about with Velociraptor and that most people think Velociraptor is a six foot tall man eating killer machine. Again, not the case. But the biggest one is how cloning and sort of de-extincting animals works. Because there are people working on it. But if you get a mosquito, we'll, we'll just take it, you know, line for line from what Jurassic Park does. If you have a mosquito, you know, in amber, you know, fossilized tree sap that has dinosaur blood. It's not like that blood doesn't also get changed. It's not like that blood is still completely intact because a, the mosquitoes enzymes and things in it destroy the blood almost immediately. Number one, number two, DNA itself only has, uh, I'll refer to it as a shelf life for lack of a better term of at most like 10,000 years, Dep- if you have some really, really unique fossilization uh, sort of parameters, you know, if it's in a really unique environment, you could maybe push that close to a million. It, it wouldn't even come close to 66 million years. You might get little tiny fragments of uh, nucleic acids which are what make DNA up. That is what the N and A stand for in DNA. But to be able to piece them back in an order that would make any form of sense to make an animal is literally just not possible. Even with substituting in chunks of frog DNA, or I believe in uh, Jurassic World, they use some cuttlefish DNA when they make the big monstery dinosaur. Because... Like Chris Pratt says, when referring to that big monster dinosaur in Jurassic World, that is not a dinosaur. At that point, there is so much genetic mix-up in that thing. You would have to add so much other stuff that that would no longer be what you are calling it as a dinosaur. Let alone, you probably wouldn't even be able to get a you know viable animal to begin with. And so with that, so like the science there is junk science specifically when it comes to uh, creating dinosaurs. But there are, like you said, there are kind of de-extinction projects underway. My understanding was that like there have been one or two animals that have been de-extincted for like 10 minutes before those organisms then died. Do I have that like somewhere close to correct on the current state of de-extinction? Sort of. So that that has been the case for a couple different species, and I don't remember what they are off the top of my head. Um, I know we do have DNA from uh, the thylacine, which is most people would call like the Tasmanian wolf, uh, you know, a larger carnivorous cousin of the Tasmanian devil. It's been extinct since the early 1900s. We do still have its DNA. So we could potentially clone one of those. That brings me to my question. And um, I think that was this was kind of what Jeff Goldblum was talking about. In the movie, I think it's right before they go on that tour when they're kind of having the dinner, which is sort of the ethics of trying to bring back these, you know, they're talking about animals specifically in 
in that film, but trying to bring back animals that have since gone extinct. And is that an okay thing to do, that kind of cloning? And does it make a difference if those animals are extinct versus if they're endangered? And this is always one of those things for me where it feels wrong, like it feels like something's off, but I can't quite put my finger on it. Is this eugenics? Is this, um, you know, is this wrong? Is this, you know, conservation? Is this a way to try and, you know, combat some of the human-caused extinction? It, it's This is one of those things that always feels wrong to me, but I have never been able to quite figure out why it is that it feels wrong. So, like, what what are some of the ethical concerns that are going to be raised by looking at this, looking at de-extinction, looking at, you know, trying to recreate animals out of sort of their constituent DNA parts? So, before I get into that, I want to give a little bit of context of some of the uh, projects going on for like de-extincting things just so I have something to reference back to. Wonderful. So there are two big ones that I want to touch on. So the first one is actually, I don't think he is part of it anymore, but it was actually like funded and sort of run by Jack Horner and it's called the Dino Chicken Project. The Dino Chicken Project. Yes. So in birds, most, I'm not going to say all because I'm not a geneticist, but most of the genes to sort of make a bird look like a dinosaur are still there. So the genes to give it a long tail, the genes to give it teeth, the genes to give it, uh, you know, proper fingers on its hand instead of like the fused up mess of bones that birds currently have in their wing. All those genes are still there. And if you know how, you can basically turn them on and... If you do it right, you can hatch something that most people would look at and say that is a dinosaur. So before we get into any of the ethics of that, I want to talk about the other one. So the other one is sort of de-extincting woolly mammoths. Because mammoths went extinct recently enough ago that we do have... I believe we actually have like a full mammoth genome. Really? I don't know that for sure. About how long ago did mammoths go extinct? Because I think I've heard this before and it's always surprisingly recently. Uh, so it sort of depends. So the big mammoths that you're sort of thinking of anywhere from like 10 to 7,000 years ago or so. Okay. The last mammoths that we have record of were some small pygmy mammoths uh, on some islands near like British Columbia, like Vancouver area of Canada on the West coast of Canada. So they went extinct around 5,000 years ago. So basically when the pyramids were being built, there were still pygmy mammoths living on an island in ne next to Canada somewhere. Okay, and there's a project underway to bring back one of those two. To my knowledge, it is the big ones, just because they... So one of the better environments for being preserved and, like, preserving DNA for longer is, like, swampy areas. So, like, if a mammoth gets trapped in, like, a, a swamp or a bog and then becomes basically a mummy, that is pretty... That is really good for DNA. So we have... I'm going to say just for the sake of argument, a full mammoth genome. I don't know if that's technically true, but just for argument's sake, we'll say that we do. Okay. So the the, the closest relative to uh, mammoths today is the Indian elephant. They're slightly more closely related, related uh, than the African elephant is to them. So there are projects uh, about using like an Indian elephant as like a surrogate mother for cloning mammoths. So those are the two big ones that 
get the most attention. So, rightfully, any embryo that the Dino Chicken Project has fiddled with, they have killed. Rightfully so. Because and why, why rightfully so? Like I could, I could invent a reason, but just like spell it out for you know for me and some of the listeners here. So number one, I don't think that anything that they have had would have fully matured to like hatching, but they have definitely started to grow things like teeth and tails and hands. So one of the big ethical things for me is okay with, with the chicken. It's easy enough to say whoever owns, you know, the chicken will own its eggs, right? That's pretty simple enough. But then it gets to things like the mammoth where it's a little more tricky because then, so say, for example, just because Pfizer is in the news a lot right now because of the the COVID vaccine, say Pfizer is the one that clones this mammoth. How is that different than, say, the bacteria that they, that they use to produce insulin these days, which they have a patent on. Can they not just put a patent on that mammoth and package it and sell it to people? So you are, the, is like the first ethical concern you're bringing up here that there could be because that all of this work, you know, that went into creating, you know, let's, let's use the mammoth example, all this work that goes into creating a mammoth and, you know, de-extincting it, that you could then have people that are patenting animals and not, you know, when I patenting living beings and not just bacteria or just something that as best as we can tell doesn't really have thoughts or feelings, but patenting other organisms, that's kind of, yeah, sometimes a difference in amount becomes a difference in kind. And that's, that should kind of make people a little bit uneasy that we're patenting other, you know, living beings. Is that about where I have you? A little bit. And like, like the book goes into this quite a lot because there's actually a scene in the book where they like w one of the ways that uh, John Hammond, like the founder of Jurassic Park sort of sells it to like the people, like investors, basically like the cloning technology is he clones an elephant, like small enough to fit in like a birdcage. And he shows it to them be like, this is, this is where our cloning technology is right now. We can do this. But they go really deeply into the like ethical stuff around like that little baby elephant. Because the elephant's not just a normal elephant that's just chilling in a cage, like in that's roughly a you know bird size. It changes behavior so drastically that it's like afraid of everything now because it's so small. And it changes behavior in a way that it's also like kind of violent. So it's like, how can we and they talk about this in the movie, how can we possibly know? what is like what say you produce that first mammoth how do we know if what it's doing is what mammoths did we don't we're kind of producing a bastardized version of you know of a mammoth and you know hey that would be the best that we have but it's not a mammoth it is a a human created approximation exactly and so so since since we're talking about elephants so elephants are highly highly social animals they learn a lot from their, you know, specifically their mother because their dad just kind of impregnates the, the, the mother and then just kind of goes away. So elephants learn basically everything from their mother, including to the point where, granted, this isn't learning, but baby elephants will eat the, the poop of their mom 
And that's how they get like their gut bacteria that help them digest food. Mammoths, you know, granted, these are their closest relatives, but they're not that closely related. You know, they're not in the same genus. Yeah, maybe mammoths were more independent, but because you were using, you know, Indian elephants to recreate them, all of a sudden you are creating, you know, a woolly mammoth that has, you know, the sociology much more of a Indian elephant than of a woolly mammoth. And there'd be no counterfactual. There's no other way to figure out if you're doing it correctly. Exactly. So I've, I've seen people and there are actually people, some of the people funding this mammoth thing. I, I want to be clear in that. I don't believe anybody who's like funding the dino chicken project is like advocating for like actually producing an embryo or producing a baby that hatches and is alive from the egg. I don't believe anybody is advocating for that. Then what's the purpose of, it seems like if you're putting in all this work and you're just killing them, I I don't quite follow what the purpose of that would be then. Is it just to say we could do it? Sort of, but also just a better understanding of genetics and sort of what genes do what. Because okay, yes, so this is... we have we have the full genome of a chicken, but it's like specifically what genes do what is kind of tough to say until you get around and play. This is more like a proof of concept. This is more of a like a genetic project than it is a de-extinction project. It's just using de-extinction as the vehicle. Yes. But with the mammoth thing, some of the people who are funding it, or at least a lot of people that talk about it, are advocating for like releasing herds of mammoth back into like the Arctic. And, you know, there are plenty of, and I believe I, you were actually on a call where I, I did a little bit of presentation for this for a class. And I think that I went over this presentation with you. Am I, am I right? Uh, I, this does sound familiar. So there are really valid reasons for reintroducing large mammals because there was not quite like a mass extinction that you think of with like the end of the dinosaurs, but there was a pretty big extinction event about 18,000 to about 10,000 years ago in that just a lot of the large mammals died. Things like mammoths, things like the big ground sloths, uh, things like saber-toothed cats. Basically everywhere except Africa. Big mammals just kind of died. And I mean, people argue a lot over the cause of it, whether it was people, whether it was climate change type stuff. But there's a growing group of people advocating for reintroducing at least surrogates of these animals back into places like the Arctic because it can help slow global warming in sort of a roundabout really? way that, yeah, in like a roundabout way that I think we could talk about in a different episode, but again, like releasing mammoths, these, these wouldn't be mammoths. They would just be wrong elephants. <laughs> like as, as cool as I think this technology is, you can't just go around making new animals and then throwing them out there because you have no idea what's going to happen. You spent so long figuring out whether or not you could, that you didn't stop and think about whether or not you should. Exactly. Just like that line from Jurassic Park. I, I think it would be worth making one mammoth. I do think that that could potentially be worth it just to see. And granted, I, I don't study mammoths. I don't really know if we already have this information, but just know more about their biology and their physiology, especially because if we're just using just a pure mammoth genome that hasn't been messed with at all, 
and just cloning that and letting a, a, an elephant carry that baby to term, then it should physi- physiologically function as a mammoth did, even if it doesn't socially behave like a mammoth did. So getting a better understanding of sort of it's like its digestive system or, you know, different biomechanical things about it. That could be really useful information that we can then apply to fossils and potentially even other organisms to be like, okay, how right were these previous studies that we just did on fossils just sort of as like a proof of concept or a a check on the science that's already being done on mammoths. I think it could potentially be worth it, but you'd, I'm sure you would face many lawsuits along the way from like animal rights group. Cause it's like, okay, after you've done these studies, then what you just kill it. And that's, you know, that's part of the, that's part of the harm with cloning these animals that are no longer around. I do quickly want to ask you about something that was kind of posed in the movie itself, in that conversation. Um, where the person who owns the person who owns Jurassic Park in that original movie, mm-hmm. he's saying like, well, what if we had, I think he uses a, a condor as an example. Yep. And he's like, well, look at, we've got condors and condors, um, you know, condors exist, but they don't, um, they're, they're endangered. They are you know, on their way towards being extinct, but they still exist and they're not gone. So what would be the harm of, taking something that exists now, but either is on its way down due to human events, due to climate change, which I suppose are the same thing, due to any number of things, or due to just the fact that like they have a hard time reproducing. I've got an image in my head and we can you know, maybe talk about this another time, but uh, you and I have a friend, Mark, that loves to talk about how pandas are just bad at reproducing. Yes, they are. And so what would be, what would be the harm at this point Instead of taking a bastardized mammoth elephant hybrid in taking a panda or an endangered other species and recreating that in a lab to reintroduce them into the wild to try and save a species that does still exist, are there any different kind of ethical concerns that exist there? In my opinion, it really depends on how solidly we know that we are the cause. And it's funny now that he uses condors because we have since learned that condors probably are going extinct anyway because condors are essentially just giant vultures and giant vultures need giant dead or giant things to die in order to have food right right but as we just talked about all the giant things are dead it doesn't have food anymore that's the main reason i'm sure humans didn't help but the main reason why condors are doing so bad is because their food's gone. So the, the condors are a less efficient, what was it? Less efficient, uh, vulture, you said? Yeah, so it's not that they're less efficient. It's just that they had evolved alongside things the sizes, the size of mammoths that were pretty, that were pretty plentiful. And when a mammoth would die, it would essentially, condors would descend on it the same way that you see vultures descend on like, I don't know, a zebra carcass in, you know, like National Geographic footage from Africa, you know? So can I, I think I'm going to try and piece this together here because I can think I can see where you're going with kind of the ethics of this. And then uh, you tell me how well I did, but I'm assuming the the case you're going to kind of make is if taking the condor, I'll take, you know, we'll use that as the first example. 
Sure. If there is an animal that is kind of on its way out on its own, as best as we can tell, we don't obviously have the counterfactual of humans not existing, but as best right. as, you know, people can tell, you know, these animals were on their way out for, you know, one reason or another. They, you know, it is very clear that they probably are not adapted to live in the world as it exists today. I'm assuming that the case is we should not be bringing back those kinds of animals, or I should say saving those animals through these kind of, you know, laboratory means because of the fact that it's, you know, you are sort of intentionally going against the environment here and you are sort of intentionally going against evolution and you are putting these organisms into an environment where they are just not designed to survive and thrive versus if you had a different species that is their extinction or their um, decline is human cost. I'm thinking I'm, uh, I'm a history person. So I'm kind of thinking of like the American Buffalo um, yeah. that was, um, you know, systematically slaughtered for racist reasons. But if you have an animal that is on its way down specifically due to human causes, you have an animal that should still be able to survive in the environment sans human. And so you should then at that point, it is at least worth the conversation to say, we're going to try and save this animal along with trying to set up some sort of area that will protect these, that will protect these organisms. So we're not just saving them for nothing, but we are not, you know, we are not fighting against the grain of the planet. We only need to fight against the grain of humans. Is that kind of the, the thought process of the ethical concerns you were thinking of? So if by a protected area, you mean something like a national park, then yeah, we're actually already doing that. You know, back in, I, I believe the late nineties, they reintroduced wolves into Yellowstone. Essentially the same thing. They were for all intents and purposes, even though they were not globally extinct, gray wolves were locally extinct in Yellowstone. And I think it is much more worth our time and effort to reintroduce populations that are locally extinct into places where they used to be or introducing surrogates, things that ecologically do the same thing into an area where there is no longer a thing. So a really cool example uh, is one that I was hoping that I would have time to talk about is something called the Tauros project going on in Europe. So, the animal that we domesticated cows from is called an uh, auric, and they no longer exist. However, technically, all of those genes still exist within modern cattle populations. So what people are doing is selectively breeding domestic cattle to basically be aurics again. And it, it will not be perfect. They will not be aurics. You know, it will not be it will not be perfect but they're breeding them to be more wild, you know, temperament, temperament wise, they're breeding them to have longer fur, longer horns. And with the plans of reintroducing them into just wild Europe to just be free. I think that is a really cool solution as opposed to de-extincting things because we at least know how these modern animals should behave and used to behave whereas opposed to things like a mammoth 
where we have no idea. We were, um, and we've been talking about this for long enough that you'd be forgiven for um, having forgotten. We were talking about some of the kind of bad for science things that came out of Jurassic Park. So is there, you know, is there anything else that we have not yet discussed that kind of goes with some of the harm that was caused to the field uh, because of this movie? Not really. Just bad people doing bad science, you know. And this has sort of just been a general theme in science lately anyway. And by lately, I mean the last, I don't know, 20 or so years. Is that one of the biggest parts of the scientific process is checking other people. And making sure that their findings are good. And hold up to proper scrutiny. Which you would think that like the peer review process for. Because it's actually very hard to get a scientific article published. At least if you want to do it in a good journal. There are some journals that have been like demonstrably shown don't really do peer review. And those are bad journals. But if I wanted to publish something in, say, the the Journal of Vertebrate Paleontology, the highest journal in my field, it is assumed that, you know, my peers... You know, and I say this very loosely, you know, these would be people with PhDs that have been doing thing this for a long time, a lot longer than I have. They would read this, evaluate my methods, make sure my methods make sense. Even, even if they're not experts on specifically what it is that I'm talking about, they would, the journal would pick people to be reviewers that would at least know what I'm talking about. So they would pick these people. They would check my methods, make sure my methods make sense make sure my results make sense given the methods, make sure my conclusions make sense given the results, and then be like, yeah, sure, good. However, when those people that you're picking as the reviewers, just because dinosaur paleontology was so saturated with these bad people, a lot of bad stuff got through. Because these people didn't care as much about the rigors of science as they should. And so you had a bunch of people that, you know, you, it is one thing for junk science to be published, which, you know, in some cases is just going to happen. Like, even if good people are doing good science at some point, you know, something is going to get published that right. ends like, up not like being the, true. The Vaccines Cause Autism paper, that was a published paper. That mm-hmm. was published in the, to my knowledge, like the best medical journal that got through. And it was it was retracted, obviously, but it still got through. And so, good people, you know, can do bad science. But the issue came from because the field was so oversaturated with you know substandard scientists and substandard methods that were being used. Was that you know some junk science that may have been done by good people, but also may have been done by some substandard people was either not being checked because those people did not care about the scientific method itself or if it was being checked it was kind of being checked with a bias towards the sensationalism exactly that that we've talked about before exactly and so like we've said science does not easily lend itself to big sweeping conclusions science is a collection of data that people then sort of look at and say okay here's what the data currently say here's the next thing i want to try Let's see if it works. Sometimes it works, sometimes it doesn't. But journals specifically, and granted, I only really know about the paleontology journals just because that's what I do. But you will be hard pressed to find a 
like a second study of something where somebody looking at some, so say somebody publishes something that sounds a little outlandish, but could possibly be true, I guess back in like 20, well, we'll say 2018, just for argument's sake, I would have an extraordinarily hard time getting my take on that paper published this like now in that same journal, unless I straight up called the guy an idiot, in which case the journal would be like, Ooh, yeah, that's going to get us a lot of people to read this, which means they get more money. And this goes back to what we talked about in our first episode. There's not a whole lot of praise for, for doing kind of that last step of the scientific method, which is the replication. Exactly. Replication studies never get published, at least in your, your typical high ranking journals. And thank God. And you know, there's, there's a whole, I can also, I have a future episode planned. I haven't written any bullets for it, but it is, it is a heading on, on our uh, Google doc that we share for uh, episodes for the, for this podcast, but it's money slash public publishing and science. And I can talk about that for hours and hours at a time in how ridiculous some of the things for publishing are. Mike is currently typing on that in the Google doc. I am just saying, I'm just saying hi to Gavin. Well, one thing I'd like to uh, kind of put out a call for is um, amongst people that listen to this, I think once this third episode goes live is when we're going to start kind of pushing yeah. some of the um, uh, the more audience expansion for a little bit. If there is any um, work being done, um, if you are someone that's listening to this that is working on any kind of replication studies, I think we <laughs> want to hear about it. And so I, you know, I, Gavin, we haven't discussed this before, but uh, I hope I'm not overstepping by saying if somebody has any replication studies, I'm perfectly willing to dedicate an episode towards looking at what somebody has done in terms of replicating instead of original research, people that are going through and doing kind of the hard work of the scientific method and trying to replicate findings. And if those are boring findings and said, yep, this person is right. Or if, you know, it's a little bit more nuanced than that, I would like to, uh, to just kind of put that out there to everybody and say, I think that I would certainly be quite interested in hearing that kind of science being done and discussing that on the show. Yeah, absolutely. And so what, what I was sort of getting at uh, before I went off on the tangent of how long I could talk about this was open source journals are becoming much more of a thing. Um, basically ones that you don't really have to pay for where it's mostly all volunteer stuff, or at least there's very little administrative overhead compared to something like the Journal of Vertebrate Paleontology, which has so much overhead that like it costs people publishing a solid chunk of money to, to get something published in it. And at that point, it basically, in my opinion, becomes, okay, are you giving us money? Cool. We'll publish your stuff, which is obviously not cool. Um, so yeah, I thank God that more open source journals are becoming a thing. Like online only journals are becoming a thing because that means if I want to publish a, um, you know, replication study, that I can do that with much less personal cost to me in both, you know, time, paperwork, uh, and literal financial resources. And that I think is kind of a, um, a good place to end up this episode because we have been talking for 
for a yeah. little while, but we can kind of, <laughs> we, we can, this is going to be, I'm going to edit this down a little bit, make it a little bit shorter yeah. than what we've been talking for, but this is still going to be one of our longer episodes, but I think it was a, uh, a good discussion. I think we can just kind of wrap it up with, uh, with where we began, which is kind of um, the praise for, uh, praise for Jurassic Park. So do you just kind of want to say just a couple of final words as to what this movie has meant for you? Absolutely. So like I said, I've kind of ripped these movies a lot in in this episode, but obviously, at least the first one is why I got into paleontology to begin with. I love this movie so much. And even the other ones, they have some very obvious flaws. And out of the five of them, there is uh, another one being released in 2022, assuming that that's still on track. I believe they... Put off wait, wait, a little you, bit. When you say that's currently on track, do you mean the movie or the year 2022? Because either <laughs> one could be going off track at this point. Uh, the movie. Okay. Um, I believe they delayed the filming a little bit, but I think they actually started filming it in July of this year. Oh, wow. I don't know whether they finished, but it is, to my knowledge, being released in 2022. And so of the five of them, I would say four of them are... Decent movies. Okay, I so say three of them are decent movies. One is an incredible movie. One's a bad movie. So, oh yeah. Also, one of the clips uh, that I sent you, Mike, the one from Jurassic Park three, where there I meant to bring this up at some point earlier. And this is this is what I'll end on: is that the worst of the movies, Jurassic Park three, has the most <laughs> accurate scientific thing in it. In that, oh, go on. There is a scene when they are digging up some stuff in uh, Jurassic Park three where one of who I assume is like uh, a grad student or just a volunteer there at the dig site says, I don't know what's rock. I don't know how to tell rock from bone. Literally the most accurate thing, literally the most accurate thing in any of those five movies (laughs) by far, because when you're out looking for bones, it is, you have to really know what you're doing to be able to tell rock from bone when it's like in the rock still. Uh, And I just wanted to throw that in there. So even the worst one does have some nuggets of good scientific stuff in there. So they are all worth watching and all are, I think, yeah, I think they're all worth watching and all somewhat valid and valuable to science, even if it's just worth talking about in this kind of goofy context, like we have been. So if you are a regular person listening to this and you have not had a chance to yet see um, Jurassic Park or the other ones, I've seen the original, but I have not seen all of them. Definitely give them a watch. They have the, uh, the cinema seal of approval from Gavin and uh, even if you're a scientist, you'll probably get something out of being able to to watch these movies and enjoy them. This has been episode three of I Wish You Were Dead, a podcast about things that used to be alive. My name is Mike. That is Gavin. Gavin, thank you very much for this episode. This has been a lot of fun. Of course, Mike. Thank you. Wonderful. And we will see you guys next week. This episode of I Wish You Were Dead was written by Gavin Davidson and hosted by Gavin Davidson, Mike Bryson, and Fenella Campanino. It was sound edited by Mike Bryson and edited for YouTube by Gavin Davidson. Special thanks to former guests of the pod and to listeners like you.